As we continue our study here in the book of Daniel, we've come to a chapter that's been hotly debated, contested by liberal scholars, and they've actually gone so far as to say that this is not only not historical, it's anything but. The only problem is they have a tremendous problem with the historical evidence because this is one of those chapters that the Lord has taken uh, great stock to give us all kinds of historical verification on the subject matter and the people, uh, including an account of the kings of Babylon that are contained in this wonderful book and very specially this particular son who we will meet tonight, Belshazzar. And so as we pick up in chapter 5, verse 1, a story that I've been was thinking about, how quickly we forget. We are prone as human beings when God teaches us a lesson um, to not remember it for very long. Sometimes we have a tendency to turn around and do exactly what the Apostle Paul said, which is to quickly forget what manner of people we actually are. And we see that in tonight's passage. We can see Belshazzar, the king, who comes from really a godly household, comes from the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, through Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus, whom we'll look at in some detail tonight because we know a lot about him. Uh, He was considered to be the archaeologist of the Babylonian people. He spent a tremendous amount of time documenting his own history, and we are the better for it as scholars of the Bible, because this particular family is very, very, very well documented uh, in ancient historical writings. And so tonight, how quickly we forget, let's pray and we'll pick up in verse one. Father, we thank you that you confirm scripture. Lord, that you don't leave us to wonder whether these things are true, but you've given us extra biblical evidence for this particular family, Lord, for King Nebuchadnezzar himself, his son, Nabonidus, and his son, Belshazzar. And so we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Would it encourage and strengthen us, Lord? Will we draw from it great spiritual truths We thank you for the historical accuracy of the Bible that we hold in our hands. We thank you for the translators or those that preciously guarded the content of the Bible that we now have in English, Lord, bringing it forth from these chapters that were written in Aramaic to our modern time, to our modern language. We're indebted forever to them, and we pray that you would bless those who endeavor uh, to keep the word alive by making sure that it's accurate. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Daniel 5, And Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Part of the problem that people have with the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, is the numbers that are in it sometimes seem rather fantastic. As we get into our study of the book of Isaiah, um, we're going to get one of those passages that's probably the prime example of that. Uh, in one night, one angel of the Lord goes into the encampment of the Assyrians and slaughters 185,000 of their number. That's a whole lot of people. 
We've never seen a single battle ever in the course of human history, even lasting days, weeks, months, and or years, where in a single battlefield there was a loss of 185,000, yet that's exactly what the scriptures say. It uses very specific numbers. And so here there's a party thrown for a thousand of his lords, and so that throws some people into a tizzy. The only problem is we have all kinds of accounts of the Babylonians throwing parties with tens of thousands of people in them. And it's not from the Bible, it's from extra-biblical sources. They wrote themselves. They were great chronicles and chroniclers of their history. And, and so we have some other documents to compare, and we're going to look at some of those tonight. And he drank wine in the presence of the thousands. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So now a little bit of history. The, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. This is the temple that's referenced in the book of Nehemiah uh, that will need to be rebuilt. Uh, it is the one that is finally completed uh, under in, in a very much lesser form on, under the, the instruction of Ezra the scribe. Uh, and so that temple has been destroyed. So this is the first temple. But in that temple, all of the implements, the silver horns, uh, the incense altar, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken captive. And in fact, it, it is widely believed, I believe myself, uh, that these implements never came back from the Babylonian captivity. And, and so the reason that we believe that the Jewish people were incapable of actually having uh, truly the, the feast days and all the things necessary to continue uh, in the Old Covenant law is that they didn't have an Ark of the Covenant uh, inside of the Holy of Holies. That was in Babylon. It stayed there. There's no record of it ever going back. And so those goods are with King Nebuchadnezzar. They're stored in Babylon. And instead of honoring them and instead of keeping track of them, instead of them being, in essence, the stolen goods of someone else's uh, history, um, this particular king decides that he's going to party with them. And the main character in our story tonight is Belshazzar. He's the son of Nabonidus, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is a family uh, of rulers of Babylon. Um, and because in Aramaic there's no word for grandfather, they simply use the same word for father, for ancestor, or paternal ancestor. Uh, you're going to see there in verse 2 the, the word uh, father, but it is, it is really indicating his ancestor as opposed to his, directly his father. It's been confusing to some. Uh, but we need to remember exactly who Nebuchadnezzar was. So now you're, you're Nebuchadnezzar. He has a son, Nabonidus, and he has a son, which is Belshazzar. And so we're about 26 years from our first foray into this book. There has been another generation of children born, uh, and those children are now going to take up some of their father's uh, rulership. And so in order for us to understand this, we also need to understand kind of some history. When we study the book of Second Kings, we're going to find out that uh, most likely um, this particular king 
uh, Amal Marduk, who is known as Evil Marduk, if you look him up in 2 Kings at the very end of the last chapter of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 25, uh, you're going to find that he actually shows uh, King Jehoiakim uh, uh, quite a bit of grace and is kind to him. And it's very likely that this story, as you look at it, because Nebuchadnezzar, remember, has repented. He's cried out to Daniel's God. He recognizes who Daniel's God is. He pays homage, gives his life in that sense, in an Old Testament sense, to him. And so you can kind of see that history being passed down uh, through these sons. But like every family, uh, not all the kids. (laughs) Excuse me, I've been fighting that sneeze for about an hour now. Not all the kids are going to follow in their father's footsteps. And so uh, let's fill in some of the blanks. That kindness of evil, Merodach, the, the king that's there in, in 2 Kings 25, that's shown to the Israelites, is likely the reason that he is killed uh, by Negrilasser, his brother-in-law, in about 559 B.C. So this is a family that's hungry for power. Uh, in that particular official is one of the officials of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's actually a regional governor. Uh, we know that because Jeremiah speaks of him in Jer- Jeremiah 39. Then his son, uh, Labishai Marduk, uh, reigns for less than a year. He's beaten to death by the co-conspirators in this particular uh, attempt to take over the throne. Um, then that throne is seized by Nabonidus who reigns basically from 555 B.C. Uh, he ends up at, at being the one that's in charge, or actually the, the real king, though he's in exile in Arabia in 539. But because of that particular king, we have a tremendous amount of history, and it exists all over the world. Um, these particular cuneiform tablets and writings are contained in the Uh, National Museum in London. Um, We actually have a visiting uh, exhibition of some of the Babylonian kings that right now, if you were to go to the Getty Villa in Malibu, you can actually see some of them. Um, So very prolific in taking care of the accounts. And so he becomes known as the royal archaeologist of Babylon. Uh, He's looking everywhere for his own history and he's leaving his personal history. Uh, and so one of the things that he wrote, uh, which is contained right now in London, England, you can actually go visit it, uh, is the verse account of Nabonidus. In that verse account, he's accused of being a madman. Uh, he's accused of being a heretic because he blasphemes Marduk. And guess what? Uh, his father also blasphemed Marduk. So this is kind of a family trait. This is something that they came to believe in Daniel's God. And so a huge amount of evidence exists for the authenticity of the biblical narrative that we have uh, before us in Daniel. And so because of all these things, uh, if, you were to, if you happen to have, I'd encourage you to always uh, read and continue to, to further your education of your mind throughout your life. Um, but if you happen to have an, a copy of this month's copy of Biblical Archaeology, 
um, which, by the way, is not Christian biblical archaeology. It's just biblical archaeology. They take the Bible and research it with the archaeological accounts. Uh, these guys are actually repelling off of a cliff in modern-day Jordan. Uh, that little square that you see that's about 6 feet by 10 feet uh, has in it on its uh, my left-hand side as I'm standing now. Uh, would be your left, my right generally. Uh, there is actually a picture of Nabonidus himself, and there is an inscription there that goes on to give an account as to why he left his father Nebuchadnezzar and went to this mountaintop in modern-day Jordan. He describes in great detail the battles that he has with the Jewish people, the fact that they are uh, enslaved in, in his home city of Babylon, and so as you, you begin to look at these things, this 600-foot-tall mountain uh, is a pretty interesting place because he describes in great detail that he ascends these stairs, which are still there, to reach the top of that mountain to do battle uh, with Jehoiakim. And so as he begins to describe all these things, you can see Nabonidus uh, there on that, now on, again, on your left, my right, the inscription's in the middle. It's been uh, fairly chewed up. The typical Babylonian sun god, the typical battle Babylonian moon disk. And so he, he spent a lot of time basically bragging about himself and his family. Um, we are indebted to that bragging because part of what he did was include cuneiform tablets. Um, these happen to be in the British National Museum. They are on loan occasionally here in the United States. Uh, the Nabonidus Chronicle on my left and the Nabonidus Cylinder on my right. Um, these two things tell all about um, this particular king and how he lived. It describes the major military events. It describes his history. It describes his family's history. It names by name his father, it, Nebuchadnezzar. It names by name his grandson, uh, Belshazzar, and so Belshazzar is on that tablet. He's not an obscure person from history. His names and his deeds are listed on there, and strangely enough, one of the things that's said on, which we can't read cuneiform in here, but if you could, uh, you would find that this party that we're talking about in Daniel chapter 5 is on that tablet as is the history of the family and how they got to that place to where their family was such a mess because it references Daniel's God and it references the God of the, the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites. And so when people say, well, you know, the Bible's just a bunch of made-up stories by a bunch of new people, you know, it was probably written, you know, a few hundred years ago. No, it's not. And the reason that we know that is because Nabonidus' life was also found on multiple parchment papyri in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we're going to find out in another few chapters about another king that's going to come from Persia. That king is Cyrus. Well, Cyrus was a bit of a braggart as well. And he recorded his own cylinder, talking about when he destroys the life and the region that we know as Babylon, about the destruction of Babylon, he tells how he does it. Guess what? Uh, the book of Daniel also tells us how he does it, and these two things agree. Uh, that one is within about 100 years of the authorship of the book of Daniel. 
And so when you look at these things, it gives you tremendous sense of reliability of the biblical text because these particular ancient items agree with the text that we have in our English Bibles. Uh, That particular king is also very famous, King Cyrus, uh, because he took a great deal of time to make sure that the things, the goods that he traded in uh, were kept in his name. And so as he was doing that, he actually presented to his regents, those that governed for him in various regions all over the Middle East, what we would call a wax seal roll. Uh, It was designed to give an impression of him. Uh, He left enough of those behind that we actually have a wax seal roll from Cyrus the king, who's going to be mentioned as the one who comes and defeats this particular family. So your Bible is not filled with pieces of information that we can't identify the people, the places, and the things within their proper context, within the timeline that not biblical archaeologists, but just simply archaeologists will tell you, yes, this is when Nebuchadnezzar lived, this is when Nabonidus lived, this is when Cyrus lived, this is the the area that they lived in, this is Daniel, this is the prophet. One of the things that happens on, on this particular seal is this seal also is in given over to Darius, who is the next king. So you have Cyrus the Mede, followed by Darius of of Persia, and they are sequential in their order. Guess what? They're sequential in your Bible. And so you have the history of these various monarchs in great detail in extra-biblical sources. And to top all of that off, you travel with us to Israel, and we go to Qumran, Uh, That is cave four at Qumran. That is the most famous of all the caves. That's the one that the sheep herders uh, threw the stones in, heard the clay pots break, and began this incredible uh, piece of archaeological history that yielded um, these thousands, ultimately, of fragments of pieces of the Bible. But it also has parchment renderings Uh, of the Nabonidus Chronicle, actually written. So there in cave four, dated to 212 BC, is an inscription that gives us clear and concise understanding that not only did these rulers rule exactly when the Bible says they ruled, it names the, the rulers that followed them, following also with the Israelite kings of the region, So we have a direct connection between the biblical narrative, the historical artifacts, the region itself, the historical timeline, and it's all within the context of properly conveyed information where we can look at it and say there is no reason whatsoever for us to doubt that Daniel was a biblical character. Add to that, we actually have a copy of the book of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The book of Daniel is a historical book written about real people, real places during a real time that is one of the most well-documented archaeological uh, findings that we have in the Middle East with regard to kings and kingdoms. So you can trust your Bible. This, This is not a bunch of These are not Christian archaeologists. These are not Christian archaeologists with every reason in the world to say this isn't what happened when every time they turn over a stone, every cave, every parchment, everything that comes up just simply verifies the fact that the Bible that we have is accurate. 
the statements that are made in those scrolls tie into the book of Isaiah. Uh, in fact, Cyrus himself is mentioned in, that, uh, in those parchment pieces. And the exact place that he's placed in Daniel 10 is listed in those parchments. And the place that he's listed in Isaiah 45, 44 and 45 listed in those parchments. And he's listed as well in Ezra chapter 4. So you have three biblical books with the same kings and kingdoms with extra biblical information listing these people as having done exactly what the Bible says they did. And so when you read your Bible, don't be put off by what we call liberal scholarship that tries to say, well, that's just a fairy tale. Because when you do the research, you're going to find out there's more reason for you to believe your Bible than there is National Geographic magazine for the most part. Because there's an agenda generally. Your Bible is just simply trying to convey truth to you. And the Lord has preserved these things, I believe, to give us just a great sense. Uh, there, as you look and if you, if you travel and you go with us to the, the shrine of the book and there's this full scroll of the book of Isaiah, one of the little scrolls is actually the scroll of 4Q242, uh, which is this particular scroll of Nabonidus. And there in it is highlighted the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so be encouraged as you read your Bible. Um, nobody's disproven it. And every time they go to disprove it, all they end up doing is adding a few more details to it so we can go, yeah, you're wrong, we're right. Amen? Back to our story. First thing that we see is the, the sacrilege of, of Belshazzar. Remember, this is not Belteshazzar, that's Daniel. This is Belshazzar, uh, Nabonidus' son. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast and for a thousand of his lords. And he brings the gold and silver vessels that were from the temple. And you have to remember that there were gold and silver vessels in the temple. People always assumed that everything was gold. It was not. Uh, the trumpets, for instance, were silver. Um, some of the wash basin, basins also silver. Some of the temple implements in the courtyard were actually bronze. And so there's all kinds of things in the temple. So again, don't assume because the three major things that we would think would be gold are in fact gold. Uh, the table of showbread had gold legs on it. The incense altar was gold with its four horns. Uh, and of course, the, the giant menorah, the golden lampstand, also solid gold. And in fact, there is a replica of that in Jerusalem uh, that weighs about 214 pounds. And so there was a lot of gold. And that gold has now been brought out and it's going to be desecrated uh, by this one who knows better, who, who heard his father uh, speak of Daniel's God. And so what I find in this chapter, and I think it's an important spiritual application, is that we need to remember that God has his limits. He will only go so far. Um, he takes a lot of grief from us as humankind, um, but he has established lines that he knows about and we don't. And it's not a good thing to cross them, ever. And so for those that are tempted to just think that God, you know, kind of doesn't care, or it's like he just, he just sits up there and whatever we do is good with him, 
that's not accurate. It's not an accurate portrayal of God's holiness. While he is gracious and kind and long-suffering, he also does have limits to which he will not go past. And that is reached in this chapter. And so here come these temple implements. Can you imagine what's going on around maybe the altar of incense or, or worse yet, the Ark of the Covenant's been brought out and it's being desecrated. And they brought out the gold vessels which had been taken from the temple of the house of God, verse three says, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They're, they're basically binging, they're having a party using the holy implements of the temple. The instruments that were given to the children of Israel described in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus, for the children of Israel to know that God is holy, those same implements which were in the temple, which were holy to the, to the Lord, they're now partying out of. They drank wine, praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. On one hand, you kind of look at what's going on here and say, well, yeah, what would you expect? But a little bit earlier in some of those chronicles, and one of them you can actually see right now in the Getty, in the Getty Villa, Asherah Pernal II um, was a pretty hard partier, and actually there is an inscription on one of his wall panels that he had 69,574 guests at the dedication of his new capital. Now, I, I don't know about you, that's kind of a weird number to make up. I'm pretty sure there was some kind of tally. And, and so when you think about there being 1,000 people in, in Belshazzar's party, that's nothing compared to two generations earlier with his great-great-grandfather. And so it was a dedicated Kala, the capital, in, in 879 B.C. And in fact, even the Greeks, Alexander the Great, claimed to, to and it's written in his conquest, that he had 10,000 guests at a wedding feast. Uh, and the storyline, the book of Esther, uh, encompasses all 10 banquets, all with thousands of people at them. So uh, th- this was commonplace during that time. But it, it goes to a place that I think we can see pretty easily. This type of lifestyle is not okay with God. Never has been, never will be. This, this drinking and drunkenness uh, plays right into what I call the alcohol hall of shame that begins there in Genesis chapter 9, continues all the way through the Bible. It includes men whom we are told are righteous. I don't understand sometimes why God would call Lot righteous. I think a lot of it had to do with who he was related to and his eventually turning and leaving Sodom and all of those kind of things. Um, But when Lot drank, it wasn't good. Uh, When David's mighty men drank, it wasn't good. When they drank and partied at the foot of Mount Sinai, it wasn't good. In Job's case, his kids were partying. It wasn't good. There isn't any good that ever comes out of this type of behavior. Every single time, it leads people into debauchery. It leads them to places that they wouldn't otherwise go. It decreases their their moral acuity. Uh, It causes them to be what they would not otherwise be, and they become licentious and idolatrous. And ultimately, they begin to do things with the implements from the house of God that God just says, "Hmm, sorry, 
I was okay until those things came out. Now, I can't tell you where that is in our individual lives. If you come to me and say, well, how much of this can I do before God kills me? I'm not gonna be able to give you that point in time. I'm not gonna be able to give you any indication whatsoever that it's you know five of these and four of those and six of these and 10 of those, and if you do that, you're done. Only God knows those things. And so here's a clue. Don't do the things that God tells us not to do and then you don't have to worry about it. Don't ever get engaged in those things. Don't go where you shouldn't go. Don't, don't be involved in, in what uh, is, is referred to by Jesus as something that would blaspheme the Holy Spirit. To be guilty of some kind of sin that is just a, a direct affront and a rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. And so this drunken feast was that. It was outrageous. It was sacrilegious. Participants were reprobate. And sometimes I, I, I look at these passages and I have to remind myself that God doesn't make mistakes. Because me as a human being, I'm looking at it, you know, I kind of would take uh, the Abraham looking at Sodom. Well, Lord, if there's 10, could you just spare them? God knows that there's none. And God knows what's going to happen later. And God knows how many people are going to affect. So we shouldn't get angry at God. We shouldn't call him unfair. We shouldn't call him unjust when he deals with these things very severely. And I think there's a picture of, of things for us that we need to, to look at. You might remember in Genesis chapter 15, there's a sense that the, the cup of wickedness or iniquity of the Amorites had been filled up to the brim. Mortal enemies of the Jewish people. Uh, they, they had just continued down this road and, and Babylon reaches that place. And God has been very consistent throughout history. And the reason I draw your attention to this, this is one of those things that makes me grieve for some of the things that goes on in our, in our nation specifically. Because when you take people who are largely blessed, and as Americans, we are very blessed. Like no other people on the face of the earth, we are blessed. We have our problems, we have issues we still need to work on. Not everything is perfect, but relative to the rest of the world, we are blessed like no other place on the planet. When you take the blessings of God and you devalue them and you eventually turn good into evil, that seems to be the trigger point for God. And I'm not trying to overstate this, but I am saying what I see in the history of God's chosen people, Israel. I can't help but wonder why would he let a country like America that's been so blessed continue to sin with impunity, to do whatever we want, to destroy life, to continue to go our own way, to do what we should not do. And I think it behooves us, that's where we need to think about our our place as citizens just as Daniel and his three friends needed to they needed to stand for the Lord because what's going to happen to this nation is is here's these three men plus their friend Daniel who are going to survive Babylon itself is going to get wiped out 
So God takes care of the individually righteous, but he also deals with the sin nationally. And it kind of begs a question of us. This sacrilege that's going on. What about our nation? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51 says this, verse 21, Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says. Your God who defends his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath. You'll never drink again. I will put it in the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk over you and made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked over. David understood this in the 75th Psalm and he said, the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices and he pours it out and the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very last drop. God alone knows when he's going to exercise the price for our malbehavior. The intemperance, uh, the impropriety, the things that go on that that we should have an opinion about. The lack of piety, the, the idolatry, the immoral attitudes that we have, the indifference towards hurting people, the, the things that should concern the church. And what I've seen through history is when God says enough, God removes his hand of blessing first and then he allows catastrophe. And so what I would strongly encourage you as we look for, as we have the privilege of being engaged in our, in our political process through your vote meaning something, you should think about what you do with this regard, not political regard. Hear me very clearly not with a political motivation or a political end, but with a biblical end, with an eye focused on heaven, with you saying to yourself, why would I cast my vote for immorality? Why would I cast my vote for godlessness? Why would I cast my vote towards something that would continue down a road that might bring about the hand of God. That's where we have our obligation. It's not to a political party. It's to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's to the great I am. But here's what happens. Because man is inherently religious, we start to kind of vote along political lines. We we start to do things based on how we worship and by worship I mean that in which you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure. So instead of caring what God thinks, we care about something else or someone else and we begin to do what happens in this story. We begin to praise the gods of gold and silver and brawn and wood and stone. I think we need to be careful There's a lot of crazy political discourse going on in our public square right now. And it's easy to get sucked in to something that doesn't honor God. 
and I'm being intentionally vague right now because I'm not trying to tell you about a political issue. I'm trying to tell you don't get sucked into things that are not godly. Don't get sucked away from worshiping the king. Don't don't get pushed towards a political agenda, but rather make your agenda the king's agenda, the Lord of heaven and earth's agenda. That's our agenda. That was Daniel's agenda. That was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's agenda. Their agenda was God's agenda in Babylon. Even though Babylon would pay a horrible price, they didn't. They were spared. And so use your time, talent, and treasure to make sure that people know about your God. That that they're aware that God has his limits. That's why we should be concerned about some of the things that we see in our country today. Not because they fit a political agenda, but because they don't fit God's agenda. The next thing we see is the shock of Belshazzar. Verse 5. Now notice what happens. The implements come in. They party hardy. They're doing their thing. Thinking they're immune. Because they're the party in power. They get to do whatever they want. They're the people who are governing the country. They get to do whatever they want. In a human sense, they have unbridled power. In comes God. Because you know what? He is beholden to no one. He misses no thing. And in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand. I find this incredibly interesting. Because the lampstand symbolizes the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It symbolizes the church. It symbolizes the judgment of God, actually. That God judged those churches. And so, of all the things that the finger could write next to, it it writes next to the church, in essence. the light of the world, amen? It, it was on the feast of Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, that Jesus cried out, I am the light of the world. And so in this particular thing, we are told that the one implement that's standing next to the wall on which this hand writes is the lampstand symbolizing the light of the world. On the plaster of the king's palace, interestingly enough, excavated in Babylon, the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, 173 feet long, 56 feet wide, and guess what it's covered with? Plaster. And the king saw part of the hand that wrote. So it's like, here's his hand scribbling 
And the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked together. The dude was scared out of his mind. You can see the color draining out of his face, so frightened his knees are knocking together, his legs are giving out, and he cries out in distress. You know, the Bible says that God reserves judgment, that he actually holds it still, and that one day he's going to snatch the church away. He's going to bring about a, a period of time that Daniel's going to describe to us, this final seven, the, the 70th seven of Daniel's weeks, the tribulation and then the return, of course, the millennial reign. But prior to that, God's going to make clear that he's going to deal with mankind. And we're going to look towards the end of our time in the word tonight for the reason why. But earlier in the miracles of Moses, the finger of God was actually recognized by the Egyptians. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. And Jesus himself actually said in Luke 11, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Whenever God takes the time to use his finger, you might want to pay attention. Because he's only done it three times in the in. In, in the course of human history uh, where he actually wrote something uh, and they were all really important. And so here comes the lampstand and Belshazzar's face just turns white. I, I think the reason that Hebrews 10 says what it says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God is God does have his limits. He actually will only go so far. And while he wants to do good, he also holds in his hand his own cup of wrath, which one day he is going to pour out on this earth. He's not going to go on forever. And the reason that it's so important that we share the gospel and live lives that are godly in Christ Jesus and represent the Lord well is that time is short. The party's already started in that sense. The, the party that we call the last days is already on. We're already in that time. The only thing that we don't know is when God's hand is going to snatch the church out. We don't know that time. We don't know the day or the hour, but we do know the times and seasons. We know what the world's going to look like when that happened. As it was, Jesus said, in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. What were they doing in the days of Noah? Exactly the same things that they're doing in the palace of Belshazzar. They were partying like nobody's business. They didn't care one lick about God. They were blaspheming the Lord himself. They were basically thumbing their nose at the Lord. So whenever that is, once Israel goes back into the land, which they are, then it would be good for us to be looking up. Because God is not going to go on forever. Verse 7. He finally summons the wise men and offers a solution. The king cried aloud to bring the astrologers and the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, the same guys that he turned to last time. 
And the king spoke, except previously it was Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's two generations later. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. He's the second. Nabonidus is actually the king. He lives, uh, in essence, in isolation in Arabia. But, but he is the regent, and so he's one of the rulers. This would be the third ruler of all of the kingdom of Babylon. And now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing. Nor could they make known to the king the interpretation. And then Belshazzar was greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed. His lords were astonished. And so their, their inability to do anything real the fact that they are fakers is exposed yet again. And amazingly, these, these well-educated men are useless. And so in comes the queen. Now it's important to understand that this queen is not Belshazzar's wife. This, in fact, is, his, is the grandmother of Belshazzar. This is... Amiitis, which would be the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, she's still alive. Again, we have the Nabonidus Chronicles to thank for this. She outlived him by 50 years. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, and the queen spoke. O king, live forever. Do not let your heart trouble you. She's, She's trying to be a peacemaker here. Nor your countenance change. There is a man among you in the kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God is. And in the days of your father, and so there we we know that these these are different people from different times, a different generation, is the light of understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, and as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams and solving riddles and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let now Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. And then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? Are you that Daniel? The same one? Who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, and that the light, the understanding, the excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation to the king. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your bucks. Hang on to your cash, O king. 
Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. I don't want any part of anything you're doing. I don't want to sully myself. I won't take what you have. I don't want it. Yet I will read the writing to you, king, and make known to you and to him the interpretation. And so the queen, having some spiritual discernment, likely from her husband, reminds everyone, look, Daniel can do it. Daniel says Daniel can do it. But Daniel isn't for sale. The church should not be for sale. The church shouldn't be for sale. Our votes shouldn't be for sale. We should not be easily manipulated. We shouldn't bow down to anybody save the one true king. And we should stand for him when other people are against him. What was true in Daniel's time is true for us. We're not for sale. We never have been. We've already been bought and paid for with the price. And that was enough. The king owns me. Everything about me. And so even the the family recognizes there's something different in, in Daniel. Basically, Daniel says, look, I, I don't want any part of it. How quickly the world forgets. You see, they should already know these things. Nebuchadnezzar was already out in the field eating grass, acting like a cow. What Daniel said would happen to him, happened to him. Nebuchadnezzar is now dead. His wife's still alive, but Nebuchadnezzar's dead. And the kingdom is split. He's really got two rulers, one in Babylon and one in Arabia, good old Nabonidus. And basically God sends in Daniel to say, look, I'm not to be trifled with. You, You may think you're in control, but you're not. I am. And we have people today that for some reason don't know much about the history of the Lord. They've failed to see that God has always ultimately won. He's actually won in totality already. But he chooses to restrain his hand and he doesn't act on what he can do. He just simply says, look, I'm going to give you a chance to repent here. And because this is involving the Jewish people, I think it behooves us to think about how this relates to the day and times that we live in. Because I listen to a lot of, frankly, nonsense from people who profess to be Christians that do dumb things like practice BDS, boycott, divest, and sanction towards Israel because of the Palestinian problem. Now, let me be clear. There should be no inequities towards any person ever on the face of the earth from God's perspective. But if you're talking about taking sides against the Jewish people, you're also talking about taking sides against God. 
Because God's very clear about how he feels about the Jewish people. Part of the promise to Abraham is I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And that is an everlasting covenant. And so anybody that's in their right mind who knows anything about the Bible should understand that God's people are still the apple of his eye. That he hasn't quit keeping his eye on Israel in that sense. We only have four Jewish boys in this particular story. Daniel and his three friends. And on whose behalf does God act? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Jewish people. One day God is going to do that again. It's found in Joel chapter 3. For behold in those days, at that time, I will bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. And I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the intersection of the Kidron and the, the springs of, where the springs of Gihon flow out of the Temple Mount, the brook Kidron, near Jerusalem, but encompassing the entire valley that we call Megiddo or Armageddon. And I will enter into judgment with them there. And then he tells us why. And the reason this is important is because the world is pretty rapidly heading towards a battle in the Middle East. You have the Russians now in Syria and Turkey. You have the Ezekiel 38, 39 consortium of nations that are fully congealed. They're together now for the first time in history. And their eyes on Israel. People have had their eye on Israel a number of times in history. And strangely, Israel is still here and they're not. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, given a boy as payment for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. The final judgment of God against all of mankind is going to come for the same reason as we see here in Daniel chapter 5. How the Jewish people were treated. What was done to them. What was done with God's holiness in the presence. God's grace does not negate his justice nor does it negate his wrath. God is gracious, God is kind. He is good. His mercy endures forever. But he doesn't trifle with kings and kingdoms forever. And so as you read this passage, as you go over it, maybe these verses this week, and as you prepare yourself for the other half, for the interpretation of this dream, it behooves us 
to ask ourselves some simple questions in the world. What am I doing to support the king and his kingdom, the real king and his kingdom? What am I doing so that the world knows that there is a God in heaven who ultimately is in charge of everything? And the second question is, how am I supporting God's people, Israel? What what am I doing to make sure that they ultimately are in the place that they're supposed to be because one day God's gonna save them. Paul wrote that as he wrote to the Roman church in Romans chapter 11. He said, one day all Israel will be saved. It hasn't happened yet. But the world has gotten to a place to where they're abandoning Israel once again. God has never put up with that. He's allowed some horrific things like the Holocaust. But he's never taken his eye off of his children. And one day he's coming back, just as is happening here. So be a light in this world. Stand for the king. When others bow, we stand. We're not for sale. We don't care about the world's goods. We care about what the king wants. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for your eternal plans and they are yes and amen. You one day are gonna step out of eternity and back into time. It's gonna begin when you call the church home when we meet you in the air who are yours. And Lord, a time is then going to unfold much like this judgment on this evil king and his earthly kingdom known as Babylon. Lord, Babylon, your, your word says, the Bible says, there in Revelation chapter 19, Babylon will rise again, but it will never overtake your people. And so, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that you would use us for your glory, that we would never allow ourselves to be purchased for a few of the world's trinkets that we'd stand for you and with you and in all things and in all ways that when people see us and talk to us they would know who our king is tonight we honor you king jesus we ask you to make us like you bless your church we pray in jesus name amen